It's time for Legally Speaking, joined as always by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, always good to be here. What's on the agenda for today? Well, I tell you, nothing seems to slow the courts down. It doesn't matter about summer vacation, COVID, or anything else. They just uh, keep churning out interesting uh, decisions. Uh, the, the first one on the docket for today uh, is a case uh, that involved the Redeemed Christian Church of God versus the City of New Westminster. And the fact pattern is that the Redeemed Christian Church of God uh, rented a ballroom uh, from uh, the City of New Westminster in a facility that they own uh, for the purpose of conducting what they describe as a, quote, youth conference. Now, shortly before the youth conference was to begin, uh, a member of the public uh, sent an email uh, to the city uh, indicating uh, that they believed the event would be an anti-LGBTQ event uh, and asking the city not to allow uh, the redeemed Christian Church of God to conduct the uh, planned uh, youth conference. In response to that... The city of New Westminster um, made some internet inquiries. They looked at um, some postings by one of the people who was intended to be a speaker at the youth uh, event uh, and concluded that uh, that person had expressed uh, views that they viewed as anti-LGBTQ. Um, and then uh, the city made reference to its booking policy, which permitted, which prohibited user groups uh, that promoted things including racism, hate, violence, censorship, crime, or unethical pursuits uh, from uh, renting space from the city. Hmm. Uh, and so the city of New Westminster emailed the Redeemed Christian Church of God and said, your meeting room is canceled, hmm. uh, to which the uh, representative from the church responded, hey, hold on a minute. <laughs> you know, we've got some things to say about this, yes. which the city said, well, we'll happily talk to you, but that's not changing your decision that you're canceled. Uh, and so the result of that was a piece of litigation that produced a decision uh, this week. Um, and there are several interesting things about that case. First of all, the church brought its claim by way of what's referred to as a petition. Hmm. Um, and not to get too deep into the weeds, mm -hmm. but... When you're starting uh, something in the B.C. Supreme Court, when you want to go there to ask yeah. for something, one thing you could do would be to file a petition. Another thing you could do would be to file uh, paperwork to start an action. Interesting. I didn't action. know there was a difference. I thought it was the same thing, so now I learned something new. So the action would get you off on a track that would eventually lead to a trial, you know, with witnesses and, and so on, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the petition would be something which would get you into chambers, and it can be used to deal with a different category of requests. Hmm. Uh, and you would use a petition to, for example, do what the church was trying to do here. They sought, one of the things they sought was to conduct a judicial review of the city's decision to cancel the uh, meeting room rental. And so issues for the judge included the following interesting issues. First of all, is this the kind of thing which you can conduct a judicial review about? Um, and on that point, the judge concluded no. Hmm. The judge concluded that this decision to cancel the meeting room rental wasn't the kind of uh, government decision that somebody can conduct a judicial review about to argue that it was unreasonable or outside of the statutory authority of the decision maker. 
The judge found instead that this was a contractual dispute. And if you're having an argument over a contract, right, and whether you should get compensation for the contract being breached, the way to do that would be to start an action, which would lead to a trial, rather than a petition asking for something like a judicial review. So the judge found, well, that's just not quite right. They've, They've got the wrong thing here. However, on a couple of other interesting points, the church was successful. First of all, uh, there was an interesting issue about whether a church as an institution, because this is brought on behalf of the redeemed Christian Church of God, mm-hmm. not some person there or some person who is going to attend the youth conference. And so the church was arguing things like freedom of conscious, 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 <laughs> yeah, conscious and religion. Hmm. Um, uh, and so uh, interesting issues would arise there. Can a institution, a church, have a religion? Can an entity like that have that? I, I, uh, isn't that a necessary component of something being a church? I don't understand. Well, I mean, people at the church could certainly oh, have I a religion, see. but does oh. the church itself have a religion? Huh? It'd be like, uh, that's been an issue, for example, in the United States, which you might have heard of. I think there's a uh, place that's a um, uh, supply store for um, Hobby craft Lobby. goods. Yeah. Hobby, that's it. Yep, yep. And so one of the issues in the U.S. was, can this hobby store, the store, not the person who owns the store or the people working at the store, can the store have a religion? Interesting. Can we interfere with that? And so on that interesting point, the judge in this case found, yes, indeed, hmm. the church itself, rather than people who go to the church, can, in fact, make a claim for freedom uh, of religion. Hmm. Um uh, and so that was that part was successful for the church. So that's an interesting point. Uh, and as well, the judge found that the uh, church's right, the institution itself, its right to freedom of expression was, in fact, breached by the city of New Westminster. And it was breached on the basis that the city, well, the judge found was doing a laudable thing in terms of trying to protect minority rights if this uh, did appear to be a uh, the kind of uh, anti-LGBTQ uh, meeting that was alleged, mm-hmm. the city had failed to engage in a proper balancing exercise, and in particular by failing to allow the church to, you know, provide information about that. So the judge said, look, the, the city should have responded to the church saying, look, we've got this allegation. What exactly is it you want to be talking about here so we can make a balanced decision about whether to yeah, cancel your uh, booking or not. I and they see. didn't do that. They said, we'll talk to you, but your booking is just canceled regardless. Hmm. And so on that point, what the church was able to get was, because this was a petition, declaratory relief. The, ju- the judge essentially saying, yes, indeed, your rights were breached uh, in that regard, but it doesn't produce uh, an order that anything come from it other than that declaration, which you would expect to inform the city in terms of how it would behave in the future. Um, And the judge did, however, say that, look, if if the um, church uh, wishes to uh, pursue its claim that its religious freedom uh, was breached, it would be free to convert uh, this petition into an action and to therefore allow a trial to occur, uh, because with a trial, which is something that has to be started by uh, the action and not a petition, would allow, for example, evidence about, well, what are the religious beliefs of the uh, church? Uh, And 
that there just wasn't a basis for that on a petition. Because on a petition, it would be sort of affidavit evidence to deal with things unlike what would ordinarily occur at a trial. I see. And so the judge said, look, the affidavit material here doesn't articulate or unpack what, well, what are the religious beliefs, other than a general statement that uh, the church's religious beliefs uh, involve the biblical view of sexuality and that being engaged, which is, look, I just can't make a decision on the basis of that scant information. And so uh, it is a really interesting decision. Um, it does come to that conclusion that the city should have approached this in a different way, in particular allowing the church an opportunity to uh, explain what it was doing before making its decision. And interesting because it found that the church is free to have a uh, religious view from a constitutional perspective. There could be freedom of religion for an institution, not just a, a human being. Uh, and in that regard, the, the judge was relying upon um, things including uh, the definition of uh, what a person is uh, under the Interpretation Act. And the Interpretation Act says that a person includes a corporation. And so that is what has founded that uh, novel conclusion in Canada about uh, whether this entity is uh, able to bring that kind of a claim. Now, I so wonder if one to watch. Yeah. yeah, now I wonder if a church as an entity that has a right to religion therefore has a right to change its religion. Could a Catholic church decide that it doesn't want to be Catholic anymore? Could it become another denomination? Could it, it become atheist? That would be, like, it's interesting to think of the church itself, independent from any person who um, is a parishioner there or who worships there, could have its own religious belief and how that would be determined. Yeah, that's interesting. And another interesting point is that the, the freedom, uh, freedom of religion includes a freedom not to be religious. Yes. Right? And so that would raise some interesting issues as well. You know, what, what about uh, uh, some company that says, look, uh, um, uh, this company's relig religion is a freedom from religion. And yeah. so therefore, we uh, don't want to uh, permit uh, any religious activity whatsoever in our facility. Now, that wouldn't engage the constitutional considerations here. And the reason this can be subject to these constitutional considerations is because, of course, the city of New Westminster is a governmental entity. I see. Okay. And that's why all of those various things would apply. However, um, if you had uh, freedom of religion that could apply to a uh, corporation in the way that I've just indicated, let's say a hotel chain says, uh, you know, we are Christian and we refuse to uh, therefore uh, allow people to rent rooms from us if they are of a different religion. That, mm. That's likely to engage, of course, human rights considerations, yes. human rights uh, le legislation. But it wouldn't uh, engage a constitutional analysis because constitutional rights apply to the government, not what some hotel or hobby store <laughs> might choose to do to you. Uh, and so uh, this certainly is going to be an interesting case to watch. And it'll be interesting to see whether the church decides to pursue uh, the matter uh, by way of uh, an action and a trial to deal with those religious freedom issues, or whether the church would say, look, we're satisfied, we've got the declaration that uh, the city of New Westminster didn't uh, deal with this properly. They should have given us an opportunity to, um, you know, make submissions about what this uh, uh, conference was going to be about before they just go off and uh, cancel it on us. And I must say in that regard, uh, I, I did note that the booking policy does prohibit uh, groups that promote censorship. So, you know, there, there should be at least, I think, some sensitivity given to uh, that. Uh, and, of course, when government makes decisions, it's important that there be procedural fairness, right? Even yes. if uh, you don't succeed at the end of the day, you know, fairness dictates, procedural fairness dictates things like giving the other side an opportunity to be heard, yes. right? 
even if at the end of the day, the city of New Westminster says, I'm terribly sorry, we're not having this uh, event here, it violates our policies, and we're deciding that, it's a different thing to make that decision after hearing from both parties, as uh, it would be in this case, which was receiving the complaint, doing some investigation and making a decision, and then saying, well, we'll talk to you, but our decision's final, right? Yeah. Uh, which is, I think, how they ran up on the rocks here. Uh, so it's, it's not to say that it was inappropriate, uh, that the conclusion necessarily was a, a wrong one. It, it could be that the uh, conference, uh, proposed conference, would be in violation of the uh, booking policy and the city made the correct decision. But before making that decision, they at the very least should have allowed the uh, church to explain what it was doing and what was going to be talked about so that the city could then make an informed decision and balance the interests involved. Uh, and that's the part which they didn't get right here. Michael Mulligan with Legally Speaking. Let's take our first break. When we come back, we'll have more interesting cases in the news, including a case regarding a defamation claim, a cryptocurrency company, and the Protection of Public Participation Act, commonly known as the anti-slap legislation. What happened? Find out after this. All right, we now return to Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070, joined with Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, a rather novel case, at least in its fact pattern, up next. We have a defamation claim. We have a cryptocurrency company. We have an appeal. We have the Protection of Public Participation Act. Set this up for us. Yeah, I must say, you just can't make some of these things up. So... <laughs> This case started uh, with this cryptocurrency company and a fellow that was hired to work for it to do some computer programming uh, who left after a couple of months and seemed to be disgruntled with uh, the circumstances at the company. Uh, the disgruntled former employee um, sent a complaint uh, to uh, people, including the police. Uh, and the complaint to the police alleged that the company was engaged in uh, illegal activities and was a front for various things. So this uh, uh, quite serious claims made by the former employee. Um, and uh, eventually, uh, I think perhaps as a result of uh, email complaints this fellow was sending out, uh, there was in fact a uh, investigation started uh, with respect to um, possession of uh, uh proceeds of crime. And there was an interim order obtained that resulted in a newspaper story and caused the, uh, I think, demise of the company, uh, ultimately. And so that produced a defamation claim by the company and a couple of its principals suing the uh, former employee for defamation, claiming uh, massive damages for uh, damage to the reputation and so forth. Um, and the former employee uh, made use of uh, the legislation that you mentioned previously, which is the Protection of Public Participation Act, sometimes called the anti-slap uh, legislation that came into effect in 2019. And what that legislation does is that it provides that provides for defendants who are being sued on the basis of something they said, an expression they made, uh, to bring an application to a judge prior to a trial uh, alleging that the claim is based on something they said in expression, so in this case, the email. Yes. And if they can show that that's the basis of it, uh, and uh, the matter was a, quote, a matter of public interest, yeah. uh, then the burden shifts over to the, uh, the party suing, right, the company uh, in this case, 
to satisfy the judge of a number of things if they want to have their litigation continue. Yes. And the purpose of that was to try to stop, let's say, some big nasty company from suing everyone who says anything bad about it uh, to run up legal fees or to discourage people from you know, commenting on matters of public interest, right? Yes. That's why this was introduced. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once you establish the person who's being sued establishes that the claim was based on something they said, an expression, and it was a matter of public interest, then the other side has to show that, uh, if they has to establish for the judge that the claim has substantial merit, that there's no valid defense to it, uh, and then there's a weighing. The judge then has to weigh whether the claim of harm is serious enough that the public interest in continuing with the proceedings outweighs the public interest in protecting the expression. Yes. So it involves this weighing by a judge prior to a trial to determine, you know, should this thing be allowed to carry on? Um, and uh, I suppose, uh, you know, when we look at that, all of us might, it might be one of those things which you look at and say, well, you know, I kind of know it when I see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does seem like a bit of a challenging test for a judge, particularly when they're only going to have limited information. There's been yeah. no trial, of course. Absolutely. Sort of, you're trying to decide this in a vacuum at the beginning. Indeed, and there can't be uh, a deep dive, as Supreme Court of Canada base, or recently uh, dealt with on these matters, because of the limited nature of an anti-slap motion itself. Yeah. Right. The whole thing would be pretty meaningless if it just turned into the trial right then and there. Right. Well, now what have we saved? Yeah. Right. If you had to have a two week hearing about this thing, well, now you've just kind of made the trial sooner. <laughs> uh, and I think it would probably defeat its purpose. Uh, and so in this case, the disgruntled former employee that sent the email was successful in getting the claim struck out. But that wasn't the end of it. Uh, the cryptocurrency company appealed. Uh, and they succeeded on the appeal. Hmm. Uh, and so they will now be permitted uh, to carry on with the defamation claim against the former employee. And the, the success involved uh, the Court of Appeal uh, sort of analyzing the elements of defamation and uh, whether there could be a presumption of harm uh, where there's a defamatory statement. And the Court of Appeal concluded that indeed, once you show the the elements of defamation, there is a presumption of harm occurring. Uh, and they analyzed as well, and this is part of that issue of uh, whether there is any uh, defense to it and the merits of the claim. Um, the Court of Appeal referred to the law surrounding what's referred to as um, qualified privilege with respect to statements made to the police, like reporting some apparent crime. So let's say, for example, you phone the police and say, hey, that looks like Mulligan out there breaking into a car, yeah. <laughs> right? And the police come and do some investigation. It turns out, no, no, I was turning off somebody's lights or that was my car or something. Um, even though you've made some statement that could harm my reputation and you've published it by you know, sending that to the police, um, you would have qualified privilege that would prevent me from suing you for that statement. However, the qualified privilege doesn't apply. It is defeated if the dominant motive uh, for the statement was malice. Yeah, it can't right? be actuated so, by malice. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, you can't just say, look, I'm just here to try to you know, ruin Mulligan's reputation, and so I'm going to start making false allegations to the police. Yeah. That's both a crime, it's public mischief, but would also be actionable. You could be sued for it. Mm-hmm. And so the Court of Appeal analyzed that and then analyzed as well that uh, issue with respect to uh, harm in a defamation case and found that the judge had made an error uh, with respect to her analysis of the uh, whether the uh, harm was uh, 
uh, demonstrated there. That would go into that balancing of whether the claim is serious enough that it would outweigh the public interest in protecting expression. And so on the basis of that analysis, the Court of Appeal has found that indeed this claim can proceed. And it's an important case because it gives us some insight into how judges are to apply uh, the uh, Protection of Public Participation Act and sort of how that should be analyzed, and that may have an impact on things going forward. So an important decision just out yesterday from the Court of Appeal. Very interesting. We have two minutes and ten seconds left in our time today. How shall we spend them? Sure. I think I can tell you about the final case in about that time. The final case I wanted to talk about was an unsuccessful sentence appeal by a Métis woman who was sentenced to nine months in jail for an, a serious assault. The issue on the appeal... Uh, was whether the uh, trial judge uh, doing the sentencing had given adequate consideration to the fact that she was Métis. Um, and in that regard, there are there's a specific section that we've talked about before in the criminal code uh, that requires there to be consideration uh, of alternatives to incarceration, particularly for Aboriginal people, uh, owing to, of course, the complete over-representation of Aboriginal people in prison, uh, and systemic and other discrimination that uh, Aboriginal people have faced. Uh, and so the uh, the woman here who was sentenced to the nine months in jail was arguing that, hey, the judge hadn't uh, uh, spent any time analyzing uh, some of her serious uh, challenges in her life, including things like an absent father, uh, parents who struggled with alcohol, uh, her experience with sexual violence and substance abuse. And the Court of Appeal here, unfortunately for her, uh, didn't accept that argument. And the Court of Appeal said those kind of unfortunate circumstances are often linked to uh, general mistreatment of people other than Indigenous people and are common, unfortunately, outside of that context. Um, and uh, I, I should say, I think the important issue that's raised here, and I don't think it's settled by this case, is that the Court of Appeal said, look, it was okay, the judge made a general reference to that section dealing with Aboriginal people, uh, but found that there just wasn't enough evidence about that and nothing more needed to be said about it. And I think the best way to look at the case is to sort of as a cautionary one for judges and counsel involved with these things. Uh, and while the Court of Appeal didn't talk about that, perhaps the real takeaway here should be those of us involved with these things, judges or defense counsel or indeed uh, Crown, um, should be alive to the uh, what they call the Gladue considerations and that section of the criminal code to make sure that those kinds of issues, which may well be linked to a person's uh, Indigenous background, are squarely put before a trial judge and taken into account. And so I think it is a significant case in that uh, regard, even though it didn't result in a change of the sentence for this person. That's all the time we have for this week for Legally Speaking. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Pleasure as always. We'll talk to you next week. You as well. Uh, Have a great week. All right. Talk to you then. 